Are you ready for another round? Welcome to the latest episode of Round Rant, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Russell Foster, who is a British professor of circadian neuroscience and the head of the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute. Russell also wrote the book title Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and How It Can Revolutionize Your Sleep and Health. So I will attach a link to that book in this podcast. So if anyone's interested in hearing more about that or reading more about that, uh, click on the link. But first and foremost, Russell, thanks for coming on. And how's all with you today? Oh, great to join you, Richie. Um, Pretty good. I'm looking out the window and we've got thunder. There's a thunderstorm and hell's storms going on. But um, yeah, it's quite dramatic, I'd say. Good yeah. stuff, yeah. The sun is shining here in Dublin, so across uh, the pond all as well. So, yeah. yeah, with with regards to how I normally start these podcasts, I tend to ask about childhoods or early stories. But with your body of work, I'd be intrigued to know, like, what was it? What was the reason for you to learn about sleep? Like, what was the cause? of you eventually going on to learn about sleep and making that your main body of work? Yeah, it's it's a slightly tortuous um, path. I mean, I went to University of Bristol as an undergraduate to study zoology. I was fascinated by the animal world and still am. I mean, sort of, I'm a closet zoologist. I just love, you know, the animal world. And I thought I'd become a marine biologist. Um, that was my, my thought. Uh, then I discovered light sensing systems, photoreceptors. And I remember there was a, a second year laboratory practical where we recorded from the eye of a locust. And I just thought it was so cool. You know, you turn the lights on and you saw this change on the oscilloscope. And that kind of got me into photoreceptors and weird photoreceptors. I worked on on tadpoles for my third year project. And they have this sort of third eye, this photoreceptor, you know, um, on the top of their, their head, on the top of the sort of the brain. And I studied that. And then for my PhD work, it was how do birds detect day length to regulate their seasonal biology, another set of weird photoreceptors. And that got me then into mammals and what in the eye um, was detecting the dawn dusk cycle for the regulation of internal time. So there's a long line of sort of photoreceptor work, and I'm still working on on photoreceptors. But uh, in the process, we got sort of a whole bunch of of fundamental science that I wanted to start start to translate. And I, and, and and a key point was a very weird conversation with a psychiatrist in a in a lift, who said to me. Oh, you you work on sleep, don't you? And I said, yeah, well, kind of. And uh, he said, oh, well, my my patients with schizophrenia um, have terrible sleep-wake problems, and that's because they don't have a job. So they go to bed late, get up late, miss my clinic, and don't have friends. And I thought, well, that's just daft. Um, So we then started to work with patients with a diagnosis of schizophrenia and to look quantitatively at their sleep-wake patterns. so it's quite a jump from from the photoreceptor stuff, um, but then became increasingly interested in human sleep and circadian patterns, and studied 
mental illness, um, the profoundly blind, of course, because they mm. have huge problems with their sleep-wake cycle. Um, you find in dementia, neurodegenerative diseases, neurodevelopmental diseases, um, all of those conditions have massive sleep-wake problems. So um, I sort of now have a, a one foot in, in human sleep and circadian rhythms and another in a fundamental understanding of these pathways and in fact what we're doing at the moment is is using that knowledge to try and develop drugs that can fool the clock the master clock in the brain um, that it's seen light so for example if you have no eyes then you have unremitting jet lag for the rest of your life you know the clock is ticking but it's just drifting through time yeah. and so what we're on the verge of doing, we're just starting clinical trials in humans, we've done all the mouse work, um, it's to give back a sense of biological time to individuals who've not only lost their sense of space, they've lost their eyes, but also their sense of time, because of course, they can't, they have no eyes to regulate the internal clock. And that's looking really exciting. And if I can end my career by giving back a sense of time to People who are time blind, i.e. they've lost their eyes or in severe mental illness or neurodevelopmental diseases, then I will I will leave the job happy. <laughs> yeah, you'll be content, sleeping soundly, hopefully. I hope <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. With I suppose one of the, the main points I wanted to discuss, and there's obviously a huge body of work, and as you've even pointed out there, there's so many different aspects to sleeping and lifestyle that plays into it but fundamentally one of the questions that once people found out i was having you on the show is nearly in its basic form or maybe its most detailed form like why do we as humans sleep i know you refer to animals there but as humans yeah. why is it when it gets to whatever stage of the day or when it is dark why does the body need sleep I think there's there's two ways of answering that. One is what happens if you don't get sleep? And then the other would be, well, why did it kind of evolve in the first place? And so if we just think about the impact of not getting good sleep, which I think is a, is a really important point because it has a, a, a short term, a, you know, short term sleep disruption has a big effect upon our sort of emotional and cognitive responses, our ability to process information. So fluctuations in, fluctuations in mood. The, the really fascinating thing is that the tired brain actually remembers negative experiences but forgets the positive ones. So tired people have a have a worldview that's based upon negative experiences. Um, you have increased irritability and anxiety, loss of empathy. You fail to pick up the social signals from friends and family, um, and and you and you can't sort of respond to that appropriately. Um, there's frustration. There's risk taking, impulsivity, uh, decreased ability to process information impaired decision making you know poor communication and reduced general social connectivity now that's the short-term impact of sleep loss and then what you have when it's longer is daytime sleepiness and micro sleeps um, so uncontrollably falling asleep um, we now know cardiovascular disease is an important uh, side effect of poor sleep altered stress responses lowered 
um, uh, immune responses, higher rates of cancer. In fact, it's incredible. In shift work, of course, there's there's much higher rates of, of, of colorectal cancer, breast cancer, um, and endometrial cancer in night shift nurses. And the data are now so clear that the World Health Organization has said that a night shift worker is a probable carcinogen, which I think is is really extraordinary. Metabolic abnormalities, type 2 diabetes, depression, and psychosis, and even a, a greater risk of dementia. So really poor sleep in the middle years can be a risk factor for dementia in the later years. So, so in a sense, we've defined sleep on the basis of when you don't get it. But if we think sort of evolutionarily, why the heck have we got it in the first place? Hmm. Um, <clears throat> and I think if we go back to, you know, the fact that we sit on, on this planet that revolves once every 24 hours, and that produces a light-dark cycle, and those are pro profoundly different worlds. And essentially all life on the planet is adapted to either being day active or night active or at the junction be between the two. But it can't work effectively across the whole range. And so very early on in life, um, animals, plants, life on, on, on Earth, um, develop specializations that allow them to function optimally at those different times of day. So, for example, if you think about um, a night active animal, you know, like an owl, fantastic, you know, brilliant um, ability to detect its prey and navigate through the world at night, same for bats. But during the day, those abilities um, are, are, are almost counterproductive. So once you've made the evolutionary decision to be active at one time of the day and inactive at another, you then have to think, okay, I've got this stuff to do, all this biology. Um, what's the best way of organizing it? And essentially what sleep is, is a, 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 is a period of physical inactivity preventing you moving around within an environment to which you're poorly adapted, but during which time you perform essential biology. So information has been coming in during the day. You can't process it because there's this overwhelming amount of sensory information coming in. So you, put, you park it and you start to process it and lay it to memory and manipulate it while you're offline, not moving around the world. So memory consolidation, for example. We now know that um, the packaging up of toxins that develop when we're act when we're active can be done while we're inactive and during a sleep. Um, in fact, one particular uh, protein, a misfolded protein called beta amyloid, is largely cleared when we're asleep, and it's beta amyloid that's been linked to Alzheimer's and dementia. So it's all about providing a temporal, a time structure um, to optimize our, our ability to function. And so essentially what sleep is, is this period of inactivity stops us moving around with an environment to which we're poorly adapted, but during which time we perform a whole bunch of essential biology that allows us to function optimally during the day. So, yeah, that would be my definition of sleep. Not everybody would agree. I wrote a paper a few years ago saying there is no mystery to sleep. And my sleep colleagues um, got rather irritated with me, um, uh, basically saying, you can't say that because we were not going to get any more grants. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. And you, you somewhat said it there that it's nearly something to do with evolution or the bi yeah. biological genes that were were given as humans and i've read quite a lot because i'd be known as an idol to my friends yeah. to my family and even recently 
I in the last week I've actually been let go of my job. And you even alluded to there that being unemployed changes your sleep patterns. And I found that traditionally I used to go to bed at maybe half 12 or one o'clock at night and get mm. up at, you know, half eight. And now without even thinking about it, I'm now going much later, like half one, yeah. two, half two, and then getting up at like 10 o'clock. And okay. there's a few of my friends who would be very early sleepers. Yeah. Is that like I've read that it was nearly back in the Neolithical age where they needed people to you know protect each other so some people went to bed early and as a result some people went to bed later so they could all protect each other from potential predators or threats and i'm wondering if you have found any kind of not so much upsides but learnings as to why people are morning people go to bed earlier while other people are more suited to going to bed later and therefore getting up later Well, actually, you raise a really interesting and and I think important issue in that one's chronotype, your body clock type, whether you're a morning type, sort of a lark, an intermediate type, a dove, or an evening type, an owl, depends upon three fundamental interactions. One is your genetics. So we now know that subtle changes, even tiny changes in some of the key clock genes that sort of produce the 24-hour sort of biological clock can predispose you to be a morning type or an evening type. So, you know, part of it is genetics. So by their contribution to your genes, Richie, your mum and dad are still telling you when to get up and when to go to bed. Um, Then the second is um, age of development. So from about the age of 10, we want to go to bed later and later and later. And that uh, lateness peak is in the late teens and the early 20s. That's when we are our most late. And then as we move, uh, as we become, become older, we tend to go to bed a bit earlier and earlier and earlier. So by the time we're in our late 50s, early 60s, we're getting up and going to bed at about the time we got up and went to bed when we were 10. And that sharp rise is associated with puberty and the slow move to a more morning type is associated with the decline in some of those, those, those hormones as we age. So there's genetics, there's age and hormonal profiles. But the third, which is really important and is overlooked, is when you see light. Now, morning light exposure advances the body clock and makes you get up earlier and go to bed earlier. Whereas evening light exposure means you go to bed later and get up later. And we did a study a few years ago on university students around the world showing that those with the latest chronotype, the most owl-like, missed out the morning light. They were sleeping through morning. So they weren't getting the advancing uh, light, but they were out in the late afternoon and evening and getting the delaying uh, light. So that shifted the clock later. So the good news is that if you have to get up early, um, uh, uh, working against your sort of, let's say, your biological chronotype, you can adjust it a bit because you can set the alarm clock, um, you know, first thing in the morning, get outside, get the morning light exposure, either naturally or from a light box, and that will advance the clock a bit. Now, what's happening with you, Richie, is that not having the constraints of a job means you can sleep later. um, You're not getting the morning light 
which is delaying the clock, which means the next day you're going to probably sleep a bit later and a bit later and a bit later. And so it, it may be important uh, for you to sort of break that cycle by setting the alarm, getting the morning light, which would nudge you earlier in time. Uh, but it's really interesting. I mean, you, you're right. Uh, the, the, the span of chronotype across humans is huge. Um, and it's often wondered why. Why are we so different from every other mammal, for example, that's, that's looked at where their chronotype between individuals is very, very tight. And I think the best idea is that, yes, as, as a tribal society, it allowed vigilance across the entire 24-hour day. So there were some people awake um, at you know early hours of the morning or, or really late at night, and that probably helped the, t the group um, uh, uh, survive. And that's why we still see this huge variation in, in humans today. It, it really is quite dramatic. I mean, if you look at um, most other animals, they are really getting up and going to bed at about the same, t same time every day. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's it is, and having had pets and even cats are famous for spending most of their life asleep. It is <laughs> it's amazing how animals are a bit more consistent than ourselves. Yeah. And but, yeah, go on. Yeah, no, I, but it's, it's it's interesting how that how how that uh, chronotype changes. And and so you know we've talked about preferred sleep wake timing, but also duration changes. As we age, the duration of sleep gets less, not hugely, but it gets significantly less. You know, um, a newborn may be uh, asleep for 18 hours a day. And as we get, you know, through through the teen years, it's probably more like nine hours a day is an optimum. Um, uh, and, th and then and then sort of seven hours into old age but it's enormously variable and it's really important to stress that these are averages and, and so the, the healthy sleep duration in adults can be from six hours to 10 maybe even 10 and a half 11 hours um and so that's that's we you know you hear often in the media the mantra of you must get eight hours of sleep or you're going to die um well that's that's an average and we're all very different it's like shoe size one size does not fit all and the key thing is we define for ourselves what our individual sleep needs are and then we we make every effort to try and protect those sleep needs yeah and one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and you've been studying sleep and talking about it and doing research for well over 20 plus years. And most, researchers, yes. <laughs> <laughs> most, most researchers say all we know about sleep has really been found out in the last 25, 30 years. But the big, yeah. big development as of late is like if you look at, say, the Netflix CEO, your man, Reed Hastings, he said that sleep is their biggest competitor and that yeah. everyone in Gen Z or even the older generation, we've got so much distractions with internet, with streaming services, with our handheld devices. Like what, what are, is this now harder than ever to get a good night's sleep right I, now than say yeah. it was say 20 years ago because of all the distractions? I think that's right. I mean, you know, um, bedrooms are loaded with electrical devices, whether it's gaming, whether it's TVs, whether it's smartphones. And, and we are, you know, 
we we get kind of hooked on these things um and it's very difficult to sort of turn them off and and particularly social media um you know teenagers studies on teenagers have, have sort of shown that teenagers are perfectly well aware that they shouldn't be using their smartphone into the early hours of the morning but it's it, it's it's almost like a fix it's almost like an addiction um yeah. and so i think yeah these additional levels of intrusion uh, on our lives are are certainly changing our sleep patterns and in, almost invariably for the worse um i think also it, the way that we work and live is fundamentally different relatively speaking to the recent past i mean the 1950s most people would live kind of close to work not you know it, it wouldn't be uh, the sort of what's happening now which is people are are commuting in one or two hours to work they don't have time for breakfast you know they don't have time for for lunch often and then it's the two two hour commute on the way home so the time they get back you know it's the one big meal of the day which is this huge sort of sugar carb uh intake at the end of the day which is not healthy um so so our, our change sleep wake patterns from the recent past are also having broader impacts upon our metabolic and 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 our, our um, you know our overall health so yes and what do we do about it it's tough um and i think that we do have to make some adjustments in our lives and if we do have a long commute to work and back we really must try and make an effort to get that food intake during the first half of the day and not just uh, binge w when we get home and also don't then wind down using social media or the television but try and get to sleep and get the sleep that you need so that you can function optimally during the day but it's really tough i mean i think we we are living in a very difficult uh, time not least because of the additional anxiety i think this is that many young people in particular are facing levels of anxiety that we've never really had before um and one most people don't have a sleep problem uh, I would say it's more of a, a stress and an anxiety problem. So, you know, we now have a condition called sleep anxiety, which is the fear of not getting to sleep or once you're asleep, waking up and not getting back to sleep. And people become so anxious about this that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They don't get the sleep that they need. And so also taking time to wind down and, and, and relax and, and whether it's mindfulness or whether it's sport or whatever it is, you do something to try and disconnect from the demands of, of the day and the stresses that that induces. Mm. And there's two things there that I, I want to dig a little bit deeper into, but one of them is when you say wake up during the night and yeah. it could be a variety of reasons. It could be a noise. It could be, I don't know, stomach issues. You could be using the bathroom. You name it. There's yeah. so many different reasons. Why is it that whether it's something to do with the brain or something a bit deeper, why is it that when sometimes, not all the time, you wake up during the middle of the night, you find it next to impossible then to yeah. get back to sleep? Well, well, part of it is, is the fact that we are actually the default state of human sleep is not a single uninterrupted block. If you look at sleep patterns in the pre-industrial era, and Richard Eckert has, has written a wonderful book on this. He's gone through the literature and found all these references to I had a wonderful first sleep or, or you know, all of this, this sort of stuff in the literature. And that stimulated 
him uh, a, a, a chap called Tom Weir to look at modern humans, putting them under 12 hours of light, 12 hours of dark, and showed that when we have the opportunity for our sleep to expand, it becomes what's called biphasic or polyphasic. We go to sleep, we wake up, we go back to sleep again, we wake up, we go back to sleep again. Now, most people don't know that. Um, and so when they wake up, they think, oh, goodness, well, that's it. That's the end of sleep. Get all stressed, you know, start doing emails, start drinking coffee. Um, and they think it's it's the end of sleep. But we now know that that is not the case. If you can stay calm, if you can keep the lights low, um, if you can do something relaxing, um, you may even want to leave the bed, um, go do something else and then come back. You will almost invariably um, um, fall back off to sleep. I mean, a lot of people have been telling me um, that they use, it's a bit rude, really, use Radio 4 um, Extra um, and they plug into, you know, um, In Our Time or something like that. And uh, and they're asleep within five, ten minutes. Um, and but but essentially it's doing whatever works. Um, one of the things that you mentioned is, you know, you needing to get up and go for a pee and things like that. It's likely that it's that's not the reason most cases that that you wake up you wake up uh and you're kind of awake and not that but you're aware that there's urine in your bladder and you think oh well i better go up and, uh, and have a pee and so and, and of course it gets worse as you get older and what's happening there is that the the robustness of the clock is is flattening out and so the hormonal drive to produce urine during the day and not at night is a bit more flattened out so you're more likely to produce urine at night the other thing that you find which is i think fascinating is that um elderly people who are not moving around much they're sitting in a chair and you know you you may notice in some elderly relatives you know puffy ankles and puffy lower legs and of course that's the the blood accumulating in the lower legs when you lie down that blood and the plasma the the the, the, the fluid is then reintegrated into the body and simply by lying down, you can generate a litre of urine because of the accumulated fluids in the lower limbs. So it's really important for the elderly to keep you know, mobile, keep active uh, for a number of reasons. Not least, uh, it'll help them sleep at night because they won't be producing lots of urine, which will force them out of bed. Wow. Interesting. I'll, uh, I'll make sure to tell my old man that. And that might uh, answer some of his, his questions as to why he needs to use the restroom so often yeah. during the night. But yeah. the the second point I wanted to make was we were talking about distractions and social media or sleep anxieties. You labeled it. Yeah. I've heard of so many different things and I, I share my house with two people at the moment and we all use different tactics to try and make sure we get to bed. As, as quick as possible and normally to be fair I tend to be 5, 10 max maybe 15 minutes before I get shut eye and I'm fast asleep but right. we've heard of dimming the lights maybe an mm -hmm. hour or two before you go to sleep and not yep. using your phone an hour before sleep like what do you think are what are some of the proven methods that people should use in order to you know when they go to bed yeah. they're asleep within you know 5-10 minutes these are really important points. So I would certainly avoid bright light because we do know that bright light increases brain alertness and that will delay sleep onset. Um, I'd also um, not use smartphones and social media 
or do emails or whatever 30 minutes before you want to go to sleep, maybe even longer, because that can sort of trigger uh, alertness and anxiety. And that's the sort of thing that you want to avoid. Um, actually, within that context, you know, it's where many couples, for example, the only time they, they probably get to talk to each other about the pressing matters is is you know lying in bed before you go to sleep and of course uh that can be really stressful so in, in my household at least we ban any talk of family finances or anything like that you know we we, we schedule them for some sometime uh, uh during the day so there is the sort of reducing anxiety reducing light levels um and therefore reducing alertness but there's a big confusion in this sector which is if you look at a kindle the light from a Kindle or a smartphone or a TV screen or a PC is, is, is bright and it's going to shift the body clock um, and make you get up later, light in the evening, as we were discussing before. Yeah. But the evidence for that is really flimsy. So, for example, there was a study done a few years ago where people were asked to look at a Kindle, read a Kindle um, for four hours before bedtime on five consecutive nights. So, you know, and, and the Kindle was turned on maximum brightness and it delayed sleep onset. It was just statistically significant by under 10 minutes. And as one of my colleagues reported at the time, well, it may be statistically significant, but that's biologically meaningless. And so it's not so much the light from these devices because it's relatively low, but it's the um, uh, the 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 um, alerting effect that these these devices have on the brain. Um, so so for example, you know people will use blue blocking glasses, or shift their TV their computer screens from a blue enriched to a red enriched screen. That has there's no good data to show that has any effect at all because it's it's pretty dim and it's below the threshold of the light levels you need to shift the clock. Um, on average, you know, you need quite a bit of light for a long duration to have any effect upon the clock. So I wouldn't, you know, if you find it's relaxing to read a Kindle before you go to bed, um, and many people do, by and large, that's not going to be an issue. It's if you're reading maybe a Stephen King and <laughs> you're getting all stressy about it, that's going to be the thing that will delay your sleep onset. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. Or <laughs> watching a Alfred Hitchcock psycho special is not exactly gonna exactly. stimulate the brain. No, but, no, no. Yeah, avoid it. Yeah, do it in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, an interesting thing that it's more so for the listeners or even some of my friends who say have girlfriends or even my parents so as well. They, my parents sleep in separate rooms for sleep reasons. Um, my yep. dad says the reason he's still alive is the fact that he doesn't have <laughs> my mom interrupting his sleep because she's a, yeah. a night owl. She'll be going to bed yeah. at 2 o'clock while my, my dad is going to bed at, say, 11. But yeah. I think it's like close to 25% of couples sleep in separate rooms now, mm. and that obviously aids sleep. But for maybe couples that sleep together for intimacy it, like kind of reasons and stuff like that or as you said maybe to discuss things before bed and you know improve relationships etc mm. etc et like what are some of the the foundings on that if say people are struggling to get to sleep yeah. with their partners like how can they how can they help each other out in that department yeah 
I think this is really, again, really important, and your parents have got it right. My advice is always, if you have an alternative sleeping space and your partner is keeping you um, awake, this is not a reflection upon the quality of your relationship. Basically, um, it means that, you know, you're both going to get better sleep, you'll have a better sense of humor, you'll have greater empathy, you'll be more fun, you'll be less tired, and you'll have a better working relationship with each other. Um, so if you're not doing that, and, and it's very interesting, you know, particularly more elderly couples. So no, no, no I've spent 40 years with this, this one. I, I can't, I don't feel as I can, you know, have a separate bed now. Um, and, and there is that sort of stigma about married couples, you know, sleeping apart. It's the beginning of the end. It is absolutely not. Um, and it isn't, of course, the end of intimacy. You don't have to, you know, I mean, it can be managed perfectly well. Um, so if you don't want to sleep apart then of course if it's snoring that's the issue then um it's uh, <clears throat> uh earplugs um and there are some pretty good ones these days um and they are relatively effective i think one thing that it's worth uh, interrogating in some detail though is does your partner have obstructive sleep apnea and and say so the snoring which is this sort of a constant sort of noise but if they stop breathing for a short period of time several seconds and it may be you know 10 10 or more seconds and then they sort of kind of wake up sort of spluttering and then they go back to sleep again obstructive sleep apnea is 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 quite dangerous um and in the sense that what's happening is that you're depriving in fact it's the musculature of the throat the throat and the neck is is closing the airway and you can't get oxygen into the lungs and therefore the body. The brain detects it's not getting that oxygen and wakes you up. And then, you know, a huge intake of breath. And you then get surges, massive surges in blood pressure, which can damage this fine vasculature of um, the eye, for example, and the brain. And it's been associated with a greater risk of, of dementia. Um, and indeed uh, heart disease because of the great surges in blood pressure and stroke. So do, do get your partner to see a, a general practitioner. And it can be solved very easily with a, a mask which, which forces air into the, into the, into the nose and, and mouth, um, and, and that gets a bit of, a bit of get, getting used to, but it does work. Um, if it's not snoring, but if they're moving around and thrashing around a lot, then that might indicate um, a, a number of, of different sorts of, of, of conditions. Um, and if it's a lot of kind of violent movement, then they need to sort of contact a sleep specialist because it might be some underlying neurological issue that is causing them to move around a lot. So, so, so most of the time we're sort of not moving very much and particularly in, in REM sleep, we're paralyzed from the neck down. And one of the arguments for that is, well, we're then not acting out our dreams, which mostly occur during REM sleep. And there's conditions called REM behavioral disorder, which can cause you to, to crash around a lot. Some people have even killed their partner during <laughs> REM behavioral disorder um, because they've acted out their dreams. So if, it, if your partner finds, you know, it's sort of violent um, and it's kind of getting worse then you need to see somebody about it and and uh, other reasons for example people kicking out 
um, at night um, can be can 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 be linked to iron deficiency, um, and so it's very interesting that pregnant women uh, often kick out um, uh, and it, well whilst they're asleep, and um, they they may well be suffering from iron deficiency, and so uh, take iron supplements. Uh, again, talk to your general practitioner and get some advice about it. So most of the time, it's sort you know it's something. I did. I had a chap who's about twenty five spoke to me a few years ago, and he came up to me and said, "How old do you have to be before you can sleep in separate rooms?" <laughs> you know, there was that sort of stigma, stigma about sleeping in separate rooms. And he's you know, closely, um, uh, his, you know, very close to his partner, but they just don't sleep well together. Yeah, and it is. It's a common complaint I hear mm. often from the boyfriend side. It's like, oh, it's a nightmare. I just yeah. tossing and turning or trying to cuddle at half two in the morning, et cetera, et cetera. So it is. <laughs> it, it's 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 very common behind yeah. closed doors to hear the the problems that are persistent. And two, it, sorry, go on. No, I think it's quite interesting that it's sort of there is that sort of stigma about it, um, which is yeah. quite quite fascinating. But we should talk. We should obviously talk more openly about it. Yeah, absolutely. And two two issues of sleep that whether you're a single, whether you're married, whether you're you're divorced, whether you're whatever your your pattern may be or your preference may be, is exercise and caffeine they're two things that yeah don't necessarily go hand in hand with sleep sometimes they can you know push sleep away at times but focusing in on exercise yeah. and i'm quite interested in this department because some people say get it out of the way early do it later like what is the optimal time to exercise first and foremost and secondly like is there a certain stage of the day where by doing exercise it may be of detriment to your your sleep later yeah um so there's several we need to unpack this a bit so yeah. if you think about the optimum time to exercise let's say for a calorie burn um then it depends on your chronotype again so during the night we have a different sort of metabolism to during the day we're burning up stored calories um because we're not you know eating and therefore um you know taking in calories during the day we eat we take in calories and we burn them up so one school of thought suggests that exercise first thing in the morning before breakfast while you're still in the nighttime metabolic state and you're burning stored calories is 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 a is a good time to exercise however um we also know that your ability to exercise in terms of the uh duration and the vigor increases with core body temperature throughout the day and you can exercise for longer and more vigorously uh in the late afternoon early evening and then of course you're burning the calories that you've taken in during the day so some people suggest a short, you know, 10 minute burst of ex exercise first thing in the morning before breakfast and then do a longer, sustained, more vigorous bout of exercise 
later in the day. And of course, that'll depend on your chronotype. And some nice studies uh, came out of uh, University of Birmingham a few years ago showing that athletes, and they were divided into morning types, intermediates, and late types, um, their ability to um, uh, produce a, a high athletic performance changed throughout the day. So that the late types were um, 28% uh, more efficient at exercising in the late afternoon, early evening compared to first thing in the morning. It was a really big difference. So if, you, if you're a morning type um, and you can hack you know, getting up early and doing that, that morning burn, that's fine. Most of us are intermediate to later types, so we probably would want to exercise later in the day. Um, and again, it's what works best for you. The key thing is to exercise. Now, the only problem is, is if you exercise too late and close to bedtime, you raise core body temperature. And part of getting to sleep is a, is a, is a sh small drop in core body temperature. And if you delay that drop in body temperature or block it, then it's more difficult to get off to sleep. So some caution about vigorous exercise too close to bedtime. Okay. Well, that's interesting as uh, I'd normally like say after this podcast, for instance, five, six o'clock would be the time I'd be doing the bulk of my exercise and yeah. following that with a sauna. So there are t times where if I have a late sauna, I find myself that, Jesus Christ, I'm I'm, I'm still <laughs> struggling to shake off the sauna when I'm in, in bed. Yeah. So that yeah. does make sense in that department. And yeah. with with the other side of the coin, which is caffeine, and that's a, oh, big, yeah, a, a big, a big one. Yeah. It's it's something that like all I read or hear is like those dips during the day. A lot of people complain when it gets to like half one, two or three. That's when they tend to go reaching for coffee because they have that dip. Mm -hmm. And like what are some of the the things to be aware of with caffeine? Because I'm someone that is somewhat immune to it. I'd be having yeah. Diet Coke and having caffeine up till nine, ten o'clock at night and it wouldn't affect yeah. my sleep other people if they have a an americano would have to that's their sleep absolutely destroyed yeah. for the night like what are some of the things that people should be aware of and how caffeine can help or in some cases kind of well, destroy well, well, sleep yeah I, I, I'm, and we know about the biological processes here so um what happens is from the moment we wake up that um a substance called uh, adenosine uh, builds up and up and up and up within within the brain, um, and it's called it's part of the sleep drive, the homeostatic drive for sleep. Sleep pressure is another word that's used. Now you don't go to sleep late in the afternoon um, or early evening because that increase in sleep pressure due to adenosine um, is counteracted by the clock which as you go through the day says wake up wake up wake up and the and the drive for wakefulness from the biological clock usually uh, uh it keeps ahead of the drive for sleepiness um from from being awake and, and, and the sleep pressure now what we know is that um caffeine blocks the receptors in the brain uh that respond to adenosine so you can be really tired high levels of adenosine, you block it with caffeine, and, the, and, and caffeine can last in the body. Half-life is five to nine hours, and that's when it's just reached half of its concentration. So 
coffee, you know, particularly a few espressos uh, late in the day, will certainly um, act on many people to delay sleep. So rule of thumb is that one should, I think, avoid caffeine uh, uh, after the early afternoon. I, I tend to be rather sensitive to, to, to caffeine. And so I really do, I don't have, uh, we, we drink decaf tea, decaf coffee uh, in, in later in, in the day. And I think that makes an awful lot of sense. But as you, as you said, Richie, um, some people doesn't affect them at all. Others, it does. And of course, it d depends on how long you've been using it. You do sort of desensitize um, those those um, those effects of, of caffeine the longer you've been drinking it. Again, for some people, but not all. Yeah. So be careful about coffee. Yeah. And something that I, I find, and whether it's it's friends or from chatting in office space, a big thing is is the famous nap. Get a nap yeah. during the day or during lunch or when you go home, you're a bit tired. You're like, yeah. right, I'll do 30 minutes before I go and maybe work out or whatever you may be doing in the evenings. Like, I've heard the... The term we say is the 26er, the 26 minute nap is the be all end all for naps, but I'm personally not against napping. I just don't need to nap throughout the day yeah. and that's whether I'm working or not working, whatever it may be. I just don't feel the need to nap while some of my friends have to during the day yeah. to keep their energy up. And what, what I suppose is the optimal duration of a nap time of day if you nap at say seven in the evening is that going to destroy your sleep like what are some of the things we know about the nap or should be somewhat yeah. cautious of well, well first of all if you need a nap you're probably not getting enough sleep at night and again if we go back to the biology what's happening is that the the sleep pressure is high and it's exceeding that circadian drive for, for wakefulness so so you should think about how you might be able to you know, want to get more sleep um, uh, at night. Now, a short 20-minute nap um, at lunchtime uh, can certainly make the second part of the day um, better. You, you can be more effective and all the rest of it. So short nap, fine. Deeper naps, longer naps rather, mean you can drive into deeper levels of sleep and recovery from that can leave you groggy. So it can almost be counterproductive. So my, again, my rule of thumb would be, yeah, occasional nap, not, not an issue. Make sure it's not longer than t 20 minutes and make sure that it's not too close to bedtime because it'll push the sleep pressure back, meaning it'll be more difficult to get to sleep that night. Now, the classic case here is in teenagers. Um, so they have short nighttime sleep, social media, you know, they're delayed. They've got a delay clock anyway. Um, so they're being driven out of bed in the morning by the alarm clock or a parent um, and struggling through the school day, often sometimes even falling asleep at desks. They get home and then they will have a two hour or more sleep. And of course, that's relatively close to bedtime. That pushes back the sleep pressure, which means it's more difficult to get to sleep that night. Shorter nighttime sleep, you know, greater tiredness during the day, the, the need for a longer nap in the afternoon. And, and it's really important to break that cycle because that's where I think a nap can become dangerous, where it becomes longer and longer and it's close to bedtime. Occasional 20-minute nap, it's fine. I mean, you know, just make sure it's it's not affecting your ability to get to sleep at night. Also, daytime tiredness <clears throat> can be a side effect of taking um, nighttime sleeping tablets. 
um, zlopiclone, for example, some of the Z drugs. And in fact, it's why um, in uh, the elderly and those suffering mild dementia, the argument is do not use sleeping tablets because you can cause uh, confusion at night, um, fools at night, uh, if you need to get out of bed, and it increases the chances of daytime sleepiness and indeed cognitive decline. So um, I think it's careful, you've got to be careful not to not to become dependent upon sleeping tablets. The occasional use, of course, to correct is fine, but I, I think all pra practitioners now only give very short courses of um, sleeping tablets to sort of try and reset the sleep-wake cycle. If you've gone through a particularly stressful period or something really difficult's gone on, then short-term use is okay. You've also got to be careful about alcohol. Uh, because alcohol is a, an effective sedative. And I should say, both sleeping tablets and alcohol are sedatives. They don't provide a biological mimic for sleep. So some of the important things going on in the brain, memory formation, the processing of, of, of information to come up with solutions can actually be inhibited by sleeping tablets and, and particularly alcohol. So, so again, you know, we will have a, an occasional drink, um, uh, but it's it's where you're using that as a as a routine routine way to induce sleep is where it becomes dangerous. Hmm. And I was nearly looking at your camera there and discussing, like I was reading last night that I think it's twelve percent of people dream black and white. And mm. we were having a debate a few nights ago with my housemates about some of the crazy dreams we have. And I had an absolutely insane dream, two insane dreams in one night where I woke up uh, during both of them. And one of them made sense because the people I saw that previous day were in the dream and people I was talking about. And then another one was just completely unrelated. Like it had no, yeah. I wasn't thinking about it. The people that were in the dream, I hadn't even thought of or talked with or seen in weeks if not months but the the topic of dreams is something that is always somewhat fascinating and even yeah, every agree. person who has a a dream whether it's a, a good one or a bad one uh, it can it can stay with you and in some cases not because the research on dreams is that we tend to forget them in a hurry and uh, more often than not but what are some of the the learnings you found from dreams and I suppose like the explanation as to what, what in God's name are dreams and why are they happening? <laughs> okay. Well, we don't completely know, but I'll t give you a sense. Um, first of all, our most vivid and complicated dreams occur during REM sleep. And we, we talked about, you know, during REM sleep, you're, you're essentially um, paralyzed from the neck down. So you don't act out these bizarre um, experiences. The consensus seems to be, and, and of course we wake naturally from REM sleep. So, so we tend to remember our dreams if we wake naturally from REM sleep, and that, that's why we'll do it. The consensus seems to be that, that, that during REM sleep, we're processing our emotional issues. Um, and so, you know, many of us will have our re, re, standard anxiety dream. Um, uh, you know, one for me, and I had it just the other evening, which is bizarre. You know, I'm goodness, I'm I'm heading towards the end of my career, and I'm still you know having a dream, worried about I've got an exam, an undergraduate exam tomorrow, and I haven't done any revision. I mean, you know, it's incredible that, and, and I think it's a, an indicator of levels of anxiety, and support for that 
sort of interpretation comes from studies that looked at the dream content of New Yorkers after the Twin Towers were destroyed by terrorist action. And they weren't having a form of um, of dream, of, of recapitulation, post-traumatic stress, where you're getting flashbacks of the uh, original event, despite the fact that, you know, you saw planes crashing into these towers all the time on the telly. What New, New Yorkers were doing was having increased anxiety dreams. So they were dreams about being overwhelmed by a tsunami um, or being mugged and and it was those sorts of things so I think I think there is this correlation between emotional processing and dreams and I guess the analogy I'd make is that what we have in the brain is is a partially made jigsaw puzzle and stuff comes in during the day and you park those new bits of the jigsaw puzzle and while you're asleep you try and find a slot for them and sometimes it fits you know you've you you've, you've it makes sense other times the brain is trying to force that new bit of the piece of the jigsaw puzzle into a, a, a part of the puzzle that just doesn't make sense it's not right and and so it's a sort of an aberration of of trying to make sense of the world we live in and sometimes the brain gets it right and sometimes it doesn't and and maybe this is useful because it's the brain playing with information saying well maybe i'll try that you know that might be kind of interesting um sometimes it's bizarre weird doesn't work other times oh wow isn't that fascinating and of course you know, we, we wake after a night of sleep, often having solved a problem we've been thinking about. Um, so I, I think it's 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 one shouldn't be worried about it. I mean, I think there are things that 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 you know, if it's post traumatic shock, which is different, which is a recapitulation and a flashback of the actual events, that's very different from dreaming which is essentially a surreal and abstract representation of the world. And as I say, trying to kind of make sense of the world uh, in, in terms of one's emotional responses. Mm. And just last thing I kind of want to add to that and kind of follow up with a, a question is, like, are, is sleepwalking and dreaming interlinked is it two separate things because i've heard some crazy stories of sleepwalking i've even experienced it two of my brothers yeah. one of my brothers slept walking to my brother's room when he was younger and yeah. proceeded to go to the toilet in the room and then went back I, to his I, bed yeah yeah i, I did that it. as a kid <laughs> so it's so, more common so, than not but yeah sleepwalking occurs during um non-rem sleep because remember during rem sleep you're paralyzed yeah. and it's only when you have REM behavioral disorder and that paralysis doesn't occur that you then act out, you know, sometimes violently that those dreams, but traditional sleepwalking and many kids show it um, like your brother. I remember uh, apparently um, getting out of bed, going into the sitting room, looking at my father and said, where's mommy? And um, she was sitting there, which is kind of spooky, um, and then left and then uh, peed in her, her shopping basket. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, I, and I generally wasn't aware of it. So, you know, these things happen, and but most of us grow out of it. Um, I think that if, if somebody is experiencing sleepwalking, the, uh, the best thing is to guide them very gently back to bed certainly don't 
um, wrestle with them in any way unless they're in danger of throwing themselves out of a window or something, uh, because then they might they might respond somewhat violently. But you know, it's it's something I'd be interested to know. Does your brother sleepwalk now? I, my guess is that he probably won't. But no, who knows? he doesn't. Or at least yeah. so he says. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's something we, we grow out of. Um, and as long as people are not harming, in, in, endangering themselves in any way, it, it's it's nothing to, to worry about. Okay, well, good to know. Well, yeah, so, Russell, the formalities are over and we tend to finish the podcast with a few harmless quick-fire questions. So okay. first thing you can think of, absolutely fire it out. Uh, oh, they're God. not too challenging. Don't worry. Okay. But I'll kick off proceedings with your favorite film of all time. Uh, uh, probably the film version of Don Giovanni by Losi. Okay. Just amazing. Visually and musically. Brilliant. The best or your favorite book you've ever read? Um, I think probably... Uh, a double volume biography of Thomas Henry Huxley. He's, he's known as Darwin's bulldog. And he um, basically saw, it, it's a wonderful book by Adrian J. Desmond, two books. And, and he talks about the, the history of London and, and, and British society at that time. And that um, essentially what Huxley did was redefine the meaning of truth for everybody truth at that time in the early 90, early mid 19th century was defined by the church and religion um, and what what Huxley did was to say well hang on I think we should challenge everything ask the question why and I think that that in a why did a working man pay a penny a lot of money to go in go and listen to Huxley speak it wasn't because they wanted to understand the the subtlety of human evolution it was the fact that that science at that time was redefining our understanding of the world and the meaning of truth and I think that that two volume biography by Adrian J Desmond really brought home to me that transition um, in, in, in the way that we as a society began to view ourselves very, very differently. Okay. The worst bit of advice you've heard in your line of work? Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, Russell, your problem is you're too enthusiastic. <laughs> I thought, how absolutely ridiculous. I mean, you know, uh, and uh, uh, it's interesting. Shortly after that, I went to the States for eight years where, you know, you're allowed to be enthusiastic and you're allowed to have fun and you're in allowed to enjoy and embrace science. Um, and uh, I think that was uh, it was actually part of the motivation for leaving the UK for a, a few years. Interestingly, so many of us went away because of that kind of stupefaction that was going on towards the late 80s and we learned a different an exciting way of do, doing science uh, many europe many many of us you know europeans and we came back and we weren't prepared to put up with the old hierarchies and the old sorts of traditional ways of doing science and i think part of the reason science is so successful in europe and particularly um the uk is because we 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 relearned how to do it um and it's a big unacknowledged debt we have to our american friends who were very embracing of taking many of us in to 
to learn how to do that science supported us immensely and then carry that back to where we kept where we come from yeah one thing i'll give americans is their enthusiasm for <laughs> anything is off yeah. the charts whether it's taking your coffee order or giving you directions yeah. there i mean different it level. can get it can get irritating but i mean i mean not completely over the top but but to actually you know enjoy and embrace stuff you know and take pleasure out of life um and if that's being an enthusiast well that's i'm an enthusiast yeah <clears throat> well said and this next one, which has proven quite difficult for my guests to maybe agree on, but what is worse? Hoovering the house, changing the bed sheets, or doing the dishes? Um, I have to qualify this answer, because <laughs> at the moment, we haven't had a kitchen for coming up to six months. Okay. Uh, there's a major project going on in the house. And so we do the washing up in the bath. And do you know, after six months, uh, it, it is it's wearing desperately thin. So at the moment, it would unquestionably uh, be washing up. Normally, making hoovering, doing the beds, uh, washing up. I think probably normally it would be hoovering. Okay. Yeah. The one thing I don't like about hoovering is number one, if you don't cover everything, you'll unplug the hoover, and then thirty minutes later, you realise, oh, there's filth there. I need to nearly. <laughs> I'd go back and hoover the whole thing again or else just forget it ever happened. So yeah, sometimes yeah. Do you, I, I think I, I like those cordless ones though now because what yeah. was used to irritate the hell out of me is that, you know, it would always get caught and plugs and come out and all the rest of it. So hoovering has got definitely easier as I've got older. Yeah, true. <laughs> and the last question I was going to ask is if you could ask yourself one question that I haven't asked yet or haven't covered today, what would it be? Um, well, it's a question that I often ask people when I interview them for a job, um, which is, um, what makes you laugh? And I think that can be really telling about an individual. And the, and the person I wouldn't employ would be somebody who said, well, nothing much makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and I'm fortunate in that there's a lot of things that make me laugh. I mean, silly jokes. There's nothing better than a silly joke, yeah. you know, to make you laugh. Yeah. Or, or a silly word game or a, a pun or just something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Sure. On the golf course yesterday with one of my close friends, we pretty much were just laughing at each other's demise as we try to navigate yeah certain holes in pretty poor fashion as per usual so yeah finding finding laughter and even the most peculiar yeah. of events is I, it's right i've lost it a couple of times and it's been very embarrassing and i won't i won't i won't go on air by explaining what went on but you know um i look back and i it just still makes me smile and chuckle i think it's you know it, what makes you laugh yeah yeah good question and just lastly russell there's an extensive amount of your work online and even the book I, I mentioned earlier in the podcast in the introduction. But if people want to find your work, whether it's the book, whether it's other things you're involved in, what's the best way of finding it? Yeah, um, 
Oh, feel free to, to drop me an email. It, it might take me a bit of time to respond, but I will be delighted to respond uh, eventually. Uh, but but if you just do a Google um, for Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute, Oxford, you'll find our webpage. And you'll not only find me, but a whole bunch of mates who are doing exciting research in this area. So uh, I, I think that will be a good first point. And if there's anything specific, then I'm very happy to sort of advise. Okay, super. Well, listen, Russell, I... I've, I've learned a hell of a lot myself and hopefully the listeners agree with the, the words I just said and I just want to thank you for taking time out and being so kind with your knowledge and your time obviously and yeah listen I look forward to what comes next as you said there's a few things on your plate that you'd quote yeah. unquote retire happy if you can get to the bottom rope so I <laughs> yeah. wish you well in that quest and yeah enjoy the, the long weekend as we're saying here in Ireland well, thank you so much, Richie. It's been a delight chatting to you. And if you're ever passing through Oxford, let's get a fr get together for a cup of coffee, but not too late in the day. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay.